So I think that fake news is an issue. I think that researchers are starting to realize now just how wide of an impact it had in the 2016 election. But when I think of fake news, I think of news that is completely false. Um, and a headline that I you know, talk about sometimes is that I saw right before the election was, you know, Hillary Clinton and Yoko Ono admit to 1970s affair. You know, I mean, it's completely and completely bonkers. And most people can see that for what it is. But for those people who can't, you know, I think that that's an issue certainly of media literacy. And um, just because it's online doesn't mean it's true, obviously. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media and uh, the people who are trying to make it better. In studio with me today is Margot Suska, a journalism uh, professorial lecturer at uh, American University. Welcome, Margot. Thank you for having me, Mike. Thank you for being here. Now, um, just a bit of a backstory. We've talked a few times in the past, and you and I are going to be working together later this year at American University. I'm going to be doing a podcasting uh, podcasting class there, which I'm really excited about. But before we did that, I wanted to bring you in here so we could sort of talk about the state of journalism education, what you see going on, you know, how tough it is in this very interesting news environment to, uh, you know, prepare the next generation of uh, students for, for what's going on. So now you're not just a lecturer, but you're also uh, the head of the program that I'm going to be in. Uh, wh again, what's the program That's there? That's right. So I'm the program director of the weekend uh, master's degree program in journalism and digital storytelling. So it's, a we think, an innovative program that allows working professionals the chance to earn a master's degree in journalism and digital storytelling over 20 months on Saturdays. Yeah, and I was in a similar program there at AU. It was called something. It was called interactive journalism when I was in it, and it was hugely valuable. We've talked about it many times on the podcast about a lot of the stuff that that I learned from that and the people that I met, et cetera, and why I really enjoyed the program. And I think it's a really great thing. And you know, I was mid career and I came into this program, so the people that you're you're teaching or, or you're trying to get into the program are people who mid career, maybe they want to change their careers. So what we're seeing is a range of students who are coming into the program. We have students who come now right out of undergrad who may have caught the journalism bug a little late in their academic career. So they may have been English majors, creative writing majors, history majors, and then it was too late to declare a journalism major. So they're coming in uh, right out of undergrad. And then we also have people who are looking to switch their careers, who may be doing something in the federal government, or they may be doing something in public relations or marketing. And they'll say to me on the phone, I've always thought about doing journalism. I've always loved and had this passion for journalism. And then we see students who are coming in who may have been working in journalism for five or six years, but know that they have to increase their skill set in the skills that we offer. And they want to be able to build that skill and, and have something more to offer their employer or have something more when they go on to um, an increasingly tight job market. It was It's funny, and again, this is another one of those things that I think we've talked about at various times in the podcast, is that when we originally launched this podcast, the idea was, oh, we're going to do it for people who like who are like me, we're kind of mid-career and, and we're needed to pick up uh, some new skills. But what we found, there were quite a lot of people who were coming out of J school, this is, you know, five years ago, who didn't have the skills that they needed for the job market that was out there. So have you, have you seen a change in, the, in that period of time as to 
you know, maybe the, the education has gotten a little bit better, so a little more responsive to what's going on? Yeah, I think that journalism education has gotten more responsive because we've had to, right? We Journalism is such a vital part of democracy, and we really are training the next group of students who are going to do that work of holding government leaders accountable, and that's important work. But in order to do that work, the technology is changing, and we can't just say, well, we've always done it a certain way, and journalism is always going to be watchdog journalism, and we'll always need these kinds of storytellers. I think that we need different kinds of stories and different kinds of storytellers in this environment who need to know data. Right? They need to know how to do audio stories. They need to know how to do video stories. But they also need to know have a certain sense of history and a certain sense of culture and that that I, I don't know that they're getting in K-12 and they're starting to get it more in college. Yeah. And I think you know, we may even have talked about this, the the idea of literacy in, in journalism and in the online environment. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, a lot of the talk that came out of the last election was around this idea of fake news. And, and you know, what is fake news? And, and, and you know, is it, is it the journalist's fault? Is it the, you know, the need to sort of fill what whatever it is the, the audience wants? You know, there's so many things that are sort of swirling around this. So what what are your concerns about that sort of environment? Well, I think that an overarching concern that I have is that you have the president of the United States who's calling legitimate news organizations fake news. That doesn't do anybody any good, certainly not journalism, not civics and not democracy. And I think that that's a real issue. When I think about fake news and when I have talked to other media outlets about fake news, what I think of is news that is being generated specifically for the purpose of clicks and to get clicks in order to make revenue. And this has nothing to do with perhaps a correction that CNN has to run or the New York Times. This is completely false news. And often what what we found at the end of the 2016 election was that much of it was being generated from places overseas, not even in the United States. So I think that fake news is an issue. I think that researchers are starting to realize now just how wide of an impact it had in the 2016 election. But when I think of fake news, I think of news that is completely false. Um, and a headline that I you know, talk about sometimes is that I saw right before the election was, you know, Hillary Clinton and Yoko Ono admit to 1970s affair. You know, I mean, it's completely, completely bonkers. And most people can see that for what it is. But for those people who can't, you know, I think that that's an issue certainly of media literacy. And um, and I think, you know, that just because it's online doesn't mean it's true, obviously. Yeah, well, and, and that's one of those things where, you know, you, you expect people to be able to pick that up, but apparently they don't or they aren't. And I think this idea, this push for uh, media literacy, certainly earlier in the education process would be huge, I think, for a gain for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It would certainly make us a, a better democracy, I think, if we better had, had a better understanding. You know, my own experience of what's sort of gone on and the way we sort of deal with news here, you know, obviously we're, we're, we consider ourselves a legitimate news organization. We're not trying to deceive anybody or anything. But, you know, we deal in, you know, writing headlines that people are going to click on that are for stories that are reported that, that they're interested in. But occasionally, you know, we'll post something on Facebook and we'll get a criticism where, oh, this is fake news. Mm. And, you know, I, on a couple of occasions, like on Facebook, I'll, I'll challenge the person and say, no, this is a reported thing. Here's the link. Mm-hmm. You know, here's the reporter. And, and one time I did that, the guy, the guy <laughs> responded back to me. No, that's not what I meant. I meant fake news as in BS. 
hmm. which I guess means he just disagreed with it, hmm. which I guess is healthy. You know, I, I just the coming to an understanding with the in the vernacular of what fake news is, everything that is against whatever you believe in is you consider fake, even if it's reported, even if it's factual, you know, that's problematic. I agree. And I think that goes back to the the idea of, you know, educating people on and, and getting them to actually understand what we do. And that's actually one of the things I've tried to do in this podcast is to change it a little bit and realize, okay, part of what we're doing is maybe there's some of our audience, you know, our primary audience are journalists and they kind of know this and, and we have these conversations. And, and what I want to do in these these conversations for people who may not be journalists is so they can understand our thinking behind a lot of this, that, you know, we, we write headlines a particular way because we want to you to read our story, but that doesn't mean we want to create clickbait. That doesn't mean we want to deceive you, that we actually put a whole, you know, ethical uh, thinking behind it. And that, and it also, and by having these conversations, you, you're being transparent about um, about your process. I think that's the, that's the main thing, is getting our process out there to show, you know, why we're, you know, how we're reporting stories, what our decision process is. And what we do to verify things. I think that's important so people can understand it so that they can see, okay, yeah, I understand now what real news is. I really I understand what fake news is mm-hmm. in that environment. I agree with you. And I teach journalism ethics at American University. And I think that it's an important part of the curriculum in, in helping the students understand the process of, just as you're saying, seek truth and report it. Right? We use the Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics, transparency and accountability that are such a huge part of, of, of that code. And it's, I think once the students have been immersed in that major and immersed in that environment, I think it's very easy for them to understand how it gets done well in news organizations that they respect. But we also analyze when it doesn't get done as well and when we see when mistakes are made. And I tell my students, what I want is for them to be a voice when they have a seat at the table and they think that something maybe isn't being done as trans, you know, with as much transparency as they would hope for or not being done for the right reasons. You mentioned clickbait. What I want them to have is a voice at the table that they can say, I don't know that this is the right reason. And, and to you know at least know that they should be be able to speak up in that environment and 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 to do the practice ethically because to do journalism is such a huge honor in this country and I think that what I want is my students to understand that and I hope that we can get citizens to understand how important it is again as well. Yeah, and it was certainly, you know, candidate Trump, president Trump has certainly challenged the legitimacy of, of what our career is and what our, our calling is, mm-hmm. our job is. And many of us do view it as a calling. This is something that we we do because we believe in it and we, we believe in how important it is to to our nation. And so when somebody calls you out and says you're fake, you know, that that, that you're you're losing, you're failing, mm-hmm. you know, to try to discredit you, you know, that that's concerning. And, and you know, obviously we're human beings, we're gonna be hurt a little bit by by criticism, but but also for the fact that we understand how important this is and, and we recognize when somebody is, is trying to sort of denigrate it and mm-hmm. take it sort of down mm-hmm. for apparent political reasons. And I think I tell my students a story when I was a local news reporter in Connecticut. I did a series of investigate of investigations that led to the ouster at the polls of a locally elected official. And when he was interviewed that night after his loss, he said that the only reason he lost the election was because of the investigative work that had uncovered a corruption, my investigative work. So I tell my students, you know, you don't get into this business to make friends. 
you get into this business to be a liaison between the government and taxpayers and to let them know where their tax dollars are going. And you're not in it to make friends. And you've got to grow a thick skin and you've got to be tough because you're going to get criticism all the time. That was at the local level. I can't imagine what some of these reporters in the White House briefing room, what they're going through or, or you know, reporters covering different departments where they're getting access limited. You know, I think that's that's an issue. But it's one of the skills that we need to teach journalists. They need to know tech and data and how to do storytelling across platforms, of course. But they need to understand, I think, that they are in it for readers and for citizens and they're not in it to make friends with these politicians. Yeah, no, I always I always say that, you know, this is actually this is I realize this is sort of a physical de- demonstration. I'm holding my my hand really far down near my knee and I'm saying this is kind of where journalists are in most people's mind. This is where we are. We're really low. Only slightly lower than that are politicians. Mm-hmm. And then even slightly lower than that are maybe clowns. Um, used car sales used, people, used yeah, cars, right. people mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. I mean, it's not like it's not like, oh, my God, you know, the, the, the respected press. It's been a long time mm-hmm. um, that, that there's been <laughs> we've been abused mm-hmm. a lot. And it's funny. I, you know, I I worked at a, a chain of uh, community newspapers. We sort of prided ourselves in, you know, when the election time came around, we, we talked to everybody. We covered stories about everything. We went to all of the different events, you know, all the different political events. And, you know. Nine times out of ten, when we did a story, our story, which was fair and transparent and, you know, presented the, the candidate's point of view, and it was about a, uh, a local Republican, nine times out of ten, that candidate would call me up and said, thank you for doing that. You know, not many people do that. And, uh, you know, I always kid with my boss about this. Well, you know, why are the Republicans always saying that? And he says, oh, well, because the Democrats think we're in, in bed with them anyway. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to say anything nice to us. And so it's like, eh, well, you know, you do what you do, not for, like you said, not to have friends, but because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the chips sort of fall where they may. Sometimes we get into these, these discussions about digital journalism and we talk about data and, and all the technology and everything. This idea that it's that all we're really concentrating on is technology. But it is it is important that we also talk about, you know, transparency and ethics and, and really kind of the thing that makes us different than somebody with a uh, with an iPhone tweeting out information that we do things with a methodology. I don't know what the word I want to say is, but, you know, the, you know there's a mission. There yeah, has mission. to be. I mean, if we only look at technology or call ourselves technologists, I think that that is missing a crucial part of what makes journalism in the United States, its own special profession. And I think that that goes to mission, right, to have a constitutionally protected field um, that's meant to be a watchdog to those in power. If we only look at the technology, then we're no different, I think, than IBM or Google. And certainly there are conversations now about these huge tech giants and what role they play, Facebook, of course, what role they play in media literacy and journalism. And I think that we're going to start to see those companies do more. But I think that we need to look beyond just tech. I, I want to teach students to be flexible and to to embrace technology and social media. Because imagine if we had taught them how to do journalism using MySpace, right? I mean, if that had been the right. next frontier of journalism, well, look at where that is now. In the same way that technology just changes so rapidly. So you, you have to have them adapt to new technology and I think new storytelling methods. But I think that you've got to teach them to be flexible and look at the social media, 
Snapchat for social, you know, for for news. I think you, you know, a few years ago, you would have thought, oh, that's crazy. And now look at what news organizations are doing with it, and what journalists are using um, using those platforms to brand themselves as well, which I think is great. But it's not the only thing that we have to teach them. It's a piece, right. and there's more today than there was, you know, certainly ten years ago or twenty years ago. Yeah, and, and by and by training journalists to be flexible, you're also teaching them the importance of being constant learners. That, Absolutely, that, that they're always going to be learning new ways of of storytelling. That you sort of lay the foundation of, you know, here are our core ethics. Here is why we do things and the approach we should be taking. But <laughs> be open to other types of ways of telling stories. Recognize their strengths, when to use them, when not to use them. Mm-hmm. Those things are kind of important. I want to, I want to go to two different directions, but let me, let me since we we had talked a little bit about politics, what is you know what's the feel on campus toward what's going on campus? Let's just talk about journalist students, you know, journalism students. What, what is what is their feel about what's going on in the political sphere? So the political sphere in terms of the. Well, the administration change. We've also had some very high profile incidents of yes. of racism on campus. So I think that there has been some concern among the the new managing editor who's one of has taken two classes with me. What is the role of our student journalists to have a personal opinion on these issues of of racism? I read today that there's a neo-Nazi group that's planning to make some Verbal attacks against the student body president, who uh, is a young uh, black woman. Oh, easy target. Right. Yeah. So what is the role of, of these student journalists? And they're really facing it in, um, you know, up, up close now, which is if they are student media practitioners, student journalists, should they have any kind of a say on their Facebook page, for example? Should they be able to say, this is outrageous, this, is, this, this shouldn't be happening in our community, and we should do everything we can to stop it? And I think that we're seeing students especially because of where we are here in this political climate that you mentioned. It's been such an intense, intense year for us on campus because of the election and just the the mood, I think, on campus, that students are seeing it front and center now, how they, they need to try to set aside their personal opinions to cover issues objectively. But I don't think objectively means that you give equal space, right? It doesn't mean if you're going to have a five-minute broadcast piece that there's two and a half minutes to one side and two and a half to another. I think it means that you've you've got to look at as many opinions as possible. And it may not be two opinions, right? There may be on a college campus like ours a wide range of opinions on subjects like the presidential election or expulsion for students who are found to have committed acts uh, of racism or especially those that are deemed a hate crime. I think there are a lot of nuances on campus that our students are trying to figure out how to report fairly. Yeah, and something that you you touched on that I, which actually takes us in the other direction I wanted to go. One of the things, the other side of the technology is that it empowers a lot of people to express themselves and quite often you'll you know we hear of a journalist sadly unfortunately uh journalists of color, female journalists coming under attack uh, because of something they've written or a stance mm-hmm. they've taken. Mm-hmm. In the, the education community, you know, what approaches are, are, are being sort of developed to prepare students for, for this environment? Well, I think that one of the things that I teach in ethics is self-care, that you have to be aware of when you've had too much, right, and whether that's covering a hurricane for a week straight and you don't have any power in South Florida, which happened to me and several of our friends, or whether that's covering 9-11, also something that happened, or whether that's covering racism and you're being attacked because of your gender, sexual orientation, or race, that you need to know when it's starting to have an effect on you beyond 
just reporting the story. So what I teach is self-care. You've got to be prepared to talk to an editor or a producer and say, I'm really feeling at risk. I'm really feeling exhausted or I'm feeling like this is having an, an influence beyond just the day to day. And you've got to be able to communicate that. And hopefully you're working at a news organization you know, that will be able to assist you. And I think that it's okay when you're covering these huge, huge stories. You know, after 9-11, when I was at the Columbia Journalism School, you know, we had professors asking, you know, were we okay? Were we okay? And I think for some of us, we were not okay, but we were afraid a little to to say, gosh, you know, we were maybe we're not okay because we were just taught journalists just go, 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 and you just pursue the story and you work as hard as you can. But, you know, these are, you know, these are huge events in our lifetime that I think journalists have to agree and have to recognize that they're going to be personally affected by. And, and what can editors, you know, people in in power in newsrooms, what can they do to sort of make a newsroom more nurturing or more prepared and open for supporting their reporters in situations like that? Well, I think partly what I, I mean, in, in my experience and when I work with students who have been threatened with a subpoena or have been arrested, as I had one of my undergraduate students was uh, arrested in Ferguson, so when I get those phone calls, what, you know, what I say first and foremost is, are you okay? You know, what, is your safety okay? What needs to be done there? But I think what I've seen in my experience being an educator now for 12 years is that you've got to be able to open up a dialogue. And I think if newsrooms can get better about that and in allowing those conversations to take place, realizing that the work is difficult. And I'm not saying that, you know, people need to stop their day and in Kumbaya around a, a campfire every afternoon, but for major, major events, and like the one that our campus went through last week, we had a, a horrible act of racism, or after 9-11, I think that newsrooms need to be able to open up a space, a dialogue, even if that's as simple as a brown bag lunch, or putting perhaps a veteran reporter in touch with a younger reporter um, as kind of a mentor to somebody to say, you know, I went through this really tough situation and, and I made it through and you're going to make it through too. So I think there has to be a balance between working really hard, which we expect of, of, of journalists. You know, you're going to work a lot of 12 and 15 hour days and that's, that's going to be a part of the work and it's great work. But I think that there has to be somebody that you can turn to in that newsroom that says, you know, hey, that you can say to, to that person, you know, this is getting tough for me. You know, any journalist who has been in the career for a period of time has had to deal with something. And, you know, it may mm-hmm. not be, you know, a war or a terrorist attack mm-hmm. or something like that. But, you know, it may be, you know, like a crime they're covering sure. or, you know, some some really mm-hmm. bad, uh, you know, racist in- incident or something mm-hmm. like that. Or even some readers who, who react really negatively in, a, in an abusive mm-hmm. way to you. It's good to know that you have that you have a resource that you can fall back on. And I don't want this this discussion to be like it's necessarily all doom and gloom because <laughs> because we do uh, the thing about journalists is we all we get we love like uh, we're like pigs we we love flopping around in the filth for a bit but we actually we're in a career and I mean that in a positive way but we're in a career that is actually very optimistic. Agree. You wouldn't be a journalist if you weren't an optimist, I, I think. I agree with that. And, you know, and just to speak about it to one point, after covering hurricanes Jean and Francis in South Florida, these were back-to-back hurricanes that decimated the area um, where we were living. The school district that I covered when I was an education reporter was closed for a month. 
I mean, that's a little window into just how bad the damage was after this hurricane. And a good friend of mine, Diana Moskovitz, we worked together and she was working so hard that our editor basically had to force her to go home. Well, she went on to the Miami Herald, had a wonderful career there, and she's now a deadspin. And she's doing investigative reporting, bringing her her knowledge of investigative reporting and crime reporting, and she's covering the NFL. She's done some amazing work on domestic violence in the NFL. So when I say optimism, I I say, yeah, there are going to be tough times, but your career is going to keep moving forward. And if you put in the time and the effort and the work, you're going to end up at a place that I don't think Diana would have thought that she would have ended up at an online site. But, you know, here she is and she's doing really, really great work on an issue that's so critically important. And I think that's when I say optimism, that's the kind of optimism I feel. This is a new frontier for investigative journalism, for watchdog reporting. And we're seeing some you know, really high profile um, people with deep pockets. Pierre Omidyar is one right coming in and, and, and bankrolling investigative outlets. Now, that has perhaps its own issue that we could talk about in terms of independence, but I'm less concerned about a Pierre Omidyar funding an investigative journalism project than I am perhaps a corporate media outlet that's beholden to, to a number of shareholders. So I, I think this is a time of optimism. And, you know, speaking about podcasting, I think the Internet has opened up these avenues for storytelling that we are just starting to imagine. And I think that we have to look at it in terms of, you know, maybe you won't have a million readers or viewers the same way that people turned into Walter Cronkite or Dan Rather in the evening. But I think if you can really do something well, maybe you can get 50,000 subscribers and make a career for yourself doing what you love, whether that's inside climate news or whether that's the Marshall Project or whether that's the area that you're passionate about. I think that there's a huge avenue uh, ahead of us that that is a a real time of optimism for journalism, especially for investigative journalism. Yeah. And, you know, you wouldn't be a journalist if you didn't feel that if you did the work that something good couldn't come mm-hmm. out of it. You know, we, we do deal with so, so many dire things sometimes that it, that if if nothing good came out, we would all be a wreck. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think why we, we persevere is because we recognize the value of what we're doing and when it works and we see the results of it. I mean, we all we all have experiences, uh, little stories that, you know, you, you changed a person's life or mm-hmm. you, you changed uh, something that happened at City Hall mm-hmm. that has have, has an impact on a lot of different people. People don't know that that you were involved in that. Mm-hmm. Or they don't they don't give you credit mm-hmm. for, for doing that. But that's that's part of the job. That's not what you're in it for. You're in it for because you see the value of the work that you do and you want to want to move this forward. And, you know, I, I, too, share a lot of the optimism about you know the the technology we have. I, you know, I think there was a, a perception after the election that you know it's all this stuff, this this din that that multimedia is creating that's causing all the situation. I think, you know, the, <laughs> same as it ever was. I mean, I think. <laughs> I mean, when you know when TV came, it was going to be the death of radio, right? When cable came, it was going to be the death of network news. And certainly, what we saw was adaptation, but it wasn't right. complete annihilation. And when we look at the internet, and I think that we're not telling the full story, it's not that people wanted to just read their news or get their news online. It's really what it did to the advertising model of local newspapers is that that kind of, you know, eBay and Craigslist allowed that classified advertising revenue that was so crucial to local newspapers. It basically just people stopped, you know, putting in putting in classifieds. And so that really was a huge impact on advertising dollars. So it's not as if, 
you know, all of a sudden people stopped wanting to read the newspaper. It's that what those local news organizations lost was was that classified classified advertising revenue, which was such a huge part, you know, of their budgets. And there has been no way to, you know, to really stop right. the bleeding in that vein. Right. And then, then with the economic downturn, took out display ads. Right, of course. And so that's why you saw so many papers closing. Mm-hmm. You know, and we talk, you know, we in passing, we talk about clickbait. You know, and that's an example of... If your your whole economic model is built around you know how many people can get to your website, yeah, certainly you're gonna you're gonna get clickbaity headlines. You're gonna try to get people there. That's a an eco- economic model that's sort of spinning out that we're we're sort of working our way through. Mm-hmm. That okay, this isn't this isn't getting us the results we want. This isn't really supporting what we need to do. Let's sort of move on. I think we're still. I think despite the fact that we've been doing this for 10 years and there's this perception that, that everything is moving so quickly, I think journalism is still working through this. What's going to make us survive? I don't think it's going to be one thing. I think we see it in lots of different ways. Well, I mean, I just what, what I'm reminded of, I just was reading um, a, a Pew report um, that, that said, and I hope I don't botch the headline, which was not a clickbaity headline, but which I think said something to the effect of, you know, something like 56 percent of of online readers don't know where, you know, don't even remember the source of, of the article that they've read or that they've used or clicked on, which I think says something that, you know, if social media is this, you know, the the way that people are accessing their news and information, then how is that going to change the source of information? But I think we really have to think about, you know, the source of information and being the source, being the most reliable source and marketing ourselves as that. And maybe that is in niche areas, right? Content areas, environmental or law enforcement or race or immigration or federal policy. But I also think that at some point, users are going to have to step up, consumers are going to have to step up, and they're going to have to know where it is that they're getting their news from, um, and not their information, not their entertainment, but their news. Where are they getting it from? And right. it's got to be from a reliable source. And they've got to they've got to support the the news Absolutely. makers, the news, um, the journalists. And, and I think that was one of those things that we've seen after the election. Is there you know all the big newspapers, uh, the the Washington Post, the New York Times, mm-hmm. the Wall Street Journal. Also, also boosts in in their subscribers and increased in, increased teams and so, you know I know video jobs at the Washington Post they they had a huge surge of, uh, of video jobs last year. The Washington Post increased the size of its team covering the White House, as did the New York Times. I think they've got six people on each of those teams. The Wall Street Journal has four. So I think these are you know that boost when we saw more people getting high quality news and paying for it digitally i think that those news organizations answered now what i hope is that that is sustainable throughout this administration certainly and beyond um you know and i hope that the news organizations will continue to support it and i think that i think people are starting to understand the impact of low quality coverage or coverage that wasn't um, as dynamic as we would have hoped for in the run up to the 2016 election. But certainly now people want to know what's happening with you know, Trump care, if that's what we're calling it, or they want to know what's happening. Did their local leaders support um, a change in, in health care policy? And look at these town halls are filling up and people are demanding, they're demanding from politicians in their area answers. And I think that that's they're going to understand or people are going to start to understand that journalism is how, you know, they're, they're able to get their information and yeah. their news. Yeah, we're going to be around, I think. <laughs> Margo, thanks for coming in. Okay, thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Next time on It's All Journalism. You could assume that, that there are, 
you know, famines and skirmishes and issues that, that we're not covering because we're just covering or we're mainly covering Trump. So, you know, it's, it's something that we should worry about, although, as I said, it is very important to be dogged in uh, holding leaders accountable, particularly leaders who are doing things that are so unconventional and his critics would argue are dangerous. Join us next time when we talk to David Bendich, a professor of media studies, journalism, and digital arts at St. Michael's College in Vermont. David and I talked last August about how the press was covering then-candidate Donald Trump. We get his take on how things have changed or haven't changed since then. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, I've written a book. You can pre-order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down-and-dirty guide to podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time for you to start your own podcast? While you're on our website, why not leave a comment? Or you can send us an email at editor at itsalljournalism.com. We're always looking for new guests and topics for the podcast. We also like getting feedback on how we can make the podcast a better experience for you. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at All Journalism, and look for us on Facebook. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.